When we left off in tape number 411, I was answering uh, Brian Abshar on the uh, crises of Western civilization, the rise of the Black Death was a startling thing to a civilization that was considerably advanced. It had, however, become quite decadent. It uh, is a mistake on the part of some moderns to assume that medieval man was not clean, that he was unkempt, unbathed, and the, uh, and the like. Actually, he was very partial to bathing, and like the old Romans, uh, loved his bathhouse, which the smallest village had. Unhappily, the bathhouse became known also as the house of uh, prostitution, the Bagnio. And uh, it was partly in reaction to that that the modern age began subsequently with a deep aversion to bathing as unhealthy. It attributed the rise of the Black Death to too much bathing. <laughs> well, then at the same time, you had Europe settled on its lees, and Eastern Europe uh, was exposed to the uh, Huns and to the various barbarian groups, beginning with Genghis Khan, who moved westward. The Magyars also were a very much feared group. And for a time, Europe seemed destined to fall to these outsiders. It shattered uh, Europe and destroyed a good deal of the advance in Eastern Europe. Now, again, there was a reason for this, and it is surprising that God's judgment was as gracious as it was and not more of the world was affected. But Christianity had become too restricted too institutionalized, and that's always a danger, and it's one that we have confronting us in our time. And this extreme institutionalization of Christianity took the heart out of it. It made it a very formal thing, so that it had less and less impact upon daily life, uh, except as a formality. And this still is the problem in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, too often the orthodoxy is dead. It is too institutionalized. And uh, this now has become, to a degree, true also of Western Christianity. So there have been reasons why God has at particular times shaken up the world of Christendom. And certainly we are on a shaking now. We are down in our impact in most spheres. At the beginning of this century, about 35% of the world was European and American Christian. Now it's about 12 or 13 percent.
We are losing out population-wise, influence-wise, morality-wise, and one way or another. We are under judgment. God is saying to the European white peoples, uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Hmm. There is no future for us. It's estimated that not too far into the next century we may be no more than 5% of the world population. Hmm. Unless we have a turnaround, unless we have a revival of the faith that is root and branch in its impact. Well, all this points to what you two men were calling attention to earlier, God's judgments are moral judgments. Now, there is a moral aspect to this computer thing, but uh, it's not one that is going to be discernible to the average man. They're not going to say, we deserved it. You can't say that if you can blame programmers. Hmm. And uh, when God judges a people, they know they were judged for their sins. Historically, that has been the case. It always has been. And it is high time we recognize that uh, if we get it in a technological form, it's not the judgment of God. It's some glitch that mars the economic front for a time. Hmm. Consider then all the other things that are looming on the horizon that uh, people are not going into. For example, we have in the last year or so seen one disaster after another in the stock markets of the world. In the Far East, the markets have crashed and they've shaken the Western markets, including our own. The drops have been substantial. Now, the Western markets have not reflected the collapse that marks the Eastern Asiatic markets. Since October of 1987, when there was a crash in Wall Street, and behind the scenes the federal government entered to prop up the market. Every dip downward in the American markets, and we can reason that the same is true in Europe, has been followed by a strong support by the central bank. We know that this is true. Uh, it's been traced by one or two people in the field, but also we can see it in a curious fact. When you have a market crash, historically, the next day, or the same day, gold goes up as people turn from paper to gold. But what has happened? Gold drops even more. So gold has been pushed down of late phenomenally. It's been clobbered every time the stock market is clobbered. It is obviously not an honest market. They are afraid that there will be a fight to gold, and so they are 
postponing the inevitable by propping up the paper artificially by depressing gold. How long will that continue? And that will reflect when it comes, a moral crisis. The central banks playing God and saying, we will determine economics, not natural economic forces. We can recognize a judgment when it comes from God. In 1929, church attendance increased when the market collapsed. People knew that their culture of the 1920s was being judged. You had to live in those days as I did. And on all sides, the statement, even by men who were losing their jobs and their houses was, well, we had it coming to us. We had it coming mm. to us. When God judges us, we know it is he who has clobbered us. You have an interesting book there, Brian. Uh, the, what is it, the Time Bomb 2000? Do you want to tell us about it? Sure. Time Bomb 2000 is a fairly new book written by Edward and Jennifer Jordan. Uh, Edward Jordan is a uh, time-honored computer consultant, has written many, many books in the field, uh, very well respected. Uh, Jennifer is his daughter. The book addresses some practical concerns. It's not for software professionals, but it's for everyone. And what he does, in, or what they do in the book, is address specific areas of society. They look at how the year 2000 problem is going to affect a multitude of areas, from your job, transportation, uh, utilities, health and medical systems, uh, banking, uh, your personal PC. And they bring it all together and they show how everything is interconnected. In terms of practical preparation, they look at the systems and what would happen if you were had a disruption of service in that particular system for a day, for a month, for a year, or even 10 years. They look at the probability of how long each system might go out uh, based on the best evidence, and they give you sound, reasoned advice on how to prepare for it. For example, Brian, didn't they say that most likely scenarios American telephones might go down for a couple of days or maybe a month? Precisely. But South American telephone systems because they haven't done any Y2K work, could be down for a year or longer. That's right. And in fact, what you find is that uh, certain, uh, uh, the less developed countries will be less affected by Y2K because they don't have the complex computer systems behind everything. Uh, so there's going to be a variety of uh, problems and a variety of, of reactions, and a, uh, there's a variety of things, steps you can take. For example, uh, in dealing with jobs, they suggest uh, that you look at your employer. How far are they in Y2K compliance? How far are they in their, in their uh, remediation? How, are, how far along are the people and companies who are surrounding them that your company has connections to, that your company depends on, and other companies that depend on your company? What happens if you lose your job? What happens if they can't pay you for a week or a month? What happens if, they, if you're out of a job for a year? 
And so one, what they suggest is you provide yourself a month's worth of cash uh, on hand before January 1st, 2000. Uh, do what you can to save that. Uh, don't put it in the bank because you may not be able to get to it. Uh, actually get cash that you can access and keep it in your home. And then uh, counting on the fact, on the probability, because it's just a guess, that you will be able to get uh, some money out of your bank in one way, shape, or form after, say, the first month, have try, if you can, have a year's worth of living expenses in the bank. Um, as Brian mentioned in the previous tape, not everybody's going to be able to do that. Not everybody's going to have those options, but it's a, it's a goal to work towards. But being out of debt is a far more practical um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, strategy Absolutely. than moving to a rural area in which you have no employment because then the financial crunch begins immediately whereas you to get out of debt where you are and in your present job is is probably a a, a sensible strategy whether whether any you think anything's going to happen in 2000 or not absolutely to focus on uh, one thing that people are going probably going to be thinking about in terms of the year 2000 is most people have uh, in some form or another a personal computer of their own it might be an older model it might be a newer model people are wondering how can I deal with this in my own computer? Um, I, for one, use a software program that keeps track of my personal finances. And if I were to have a problem where my computer broke down, I would probably be able to know, be able to find out how much money I had in the bank. Um, <laughs> but uh, it might be a, a short-term hardship for me. So people are probably wondering, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm prepared for this with my own PC? Uh, the first thing uh, that you need to understand is that there are two different areas that are affected by it. Actually three. The first is what's called the BIOS. Now we don't want to get into a big technical discussion here. Um, that's not what this forum is for. So <coughs> let me just say that the BIOS is software that's burned into the computer's hardware that enables it to start and function. The actual clock functions of the computer are, con are contained in the BIOS and governed by the BIOS. Uh, unless you've got a computer that was made 20 years ago, you can upgrade your BIOS if it's not Y2K compliant. To do that, you, you're probably going to have to get a hold of a computer technician to find out if it's compliant and then have him change it out. It's very inexpensive. It can be done for uh, the actual replacement chip would be about $15 or $20 uh, plus whatever their time is worth. The second area is the operating system. And the third area is the actual software applications. One, uh, in most cases, what you're going to have to do is call the software company, both that provides your that provided your operating system and that provides your application software, and ask them: Are you year 2K compliant? Uh, year 2000 compliant? Uh, can I? rely on what you're telling me uh, that my software is going to work and if not what kind of a fix can I get? Do I have to buy a new operating system? Do I have to upgrade uh, to a new ver newer version? Is there a patch that I can get? Uh, talk to them, uh, find out what they need. Uh, that's for the operating systems and the software applications like your word processor, a spreadsheet, your finance, personal finance management software, anything that you use on a regular basis that is essential uh, to what you do with your computer at home, you're going to want to call the software manufacturer and find out 
what they've done about it and what you need to do to fix it. And this, the third one only affects just a few people, and that is programs that you may have written yourself. Uh, a lot of people out there are what we call power users, and they are able uh, to... The rest of us call them geeks. <laughs> exactly. And they usually uh, write their own software, either with macros or something like that, you're going to have to solve your own year 2000 problems with the software you've written. It's something that a lot of people will overlook, and that's something that's going to happen in a lot of businesses, too. Uh, people will write complicated macros for spreadsheets uh, to get it to do things that it, uh, it wouldn't normally do by itself. But you're going to have to look at that and basically do the same function as a programmer solving a Y2K problem for their business uh, to solve that problem. Those are the main areas uh, that somebody is going to have to deal with in your PC. Now, one of the things that uh, is really a real concern to me is, and I've mentioned that the Jordans deal with it, and is the idea of we don't know what the disaster of, of the year 2000 is going to hold. We don't know what other sort of disaster may come along. How can we prepare ourselves to protect, how can I prepare my family to protect my family, uh, to protect my children, to protect even the, uh, the, what little wealth I may have stored up for myself. What kind of answers are there? Steve, if you'll forgive me for jumping in here, I, I, I've gotten kind of a nasty reputation right now for poo-pooing Y2K when that's the furthest thing from my mind. All that I've ever had a problem with is people insisting this will happen in this way and it is the judgment of God. And quite frankly, I don't see where God has spoken to them but told them that. They haven't dealt with the probabilities of the possibilities. That's, that's, that's fine. Someone can say, look, you know, just like you invest in the stock market by looking at a company that has good growth potential, you'd also look at the this things that we've been talking about this evening and say, boy, this is scary. Let me make preparations. But they're not just saying that. They're insisting that retreat, run to the hills is the only sane option. And, I, and as I said in the last tape, I just think that's kind of self-serving, to be perfectly honest, because the vast majority of people can't do that. They don't have the assets or the resources. So what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer your question, because i got some things I just jotted down here as you were talking that relate to what we're talking about here and how to prepare. And the thing is, these things are not Y2K specific. These are the things that when I was a kid growing up in rural Maine that we did all the time. Because in the spring and the fall, we had hurricanes come through. In the summer, we had uh, lightning storms. In the winter, oh, believe me, in the winter, we had blizzards. In all of those things, every year you could plan, this is 1950s, 1960s, you could plan on your power lines being knocked down, you know, uh, the roads being closed, and there's, there's no going out to the store for a week to 10 days because they didn't have enough snow plows, or the snow plows are broken down, or you have no lights, and therefore you have no uh, pump for your water, you have no, uh, nothing to, to make your stove work, etc. And as a consequence, growing up, my family did the stuff that I'm going to talk about in a moment. And the thing that's important about it is that if you do these things, you are as well protected as you possibly can be, unless you happen to be wealthy when we're in, you can do a whole lot more things. And for example, it's interesting, Mark, you were talking a moment ago about getting out of debt. That's the first thing I got down on my list. Get out of debt. Because if you're out of debt, then you have, you have freedom. You're living responsibly. And so people need to cut down their consumer spending, 
cut up their, their credit cards, as the case may be, uh, pay off their mortgage if they can, pay off their cars, and uh, therefore live responsibly and free. Uh, I have actually heard people say, hey, don't worry, go out there and buy all this stuff and put it in your credit card, because if the banks go down, they'll never be able to make you pay anyway. How are they going to know? And I've actually heard Christians say it with almost that attitude. Well, guys, I'm not scared about Y2K, but I am scared about God. God scares me. And if you break his law deliberately and willfully, then he is going to bring his discipline against you. And stealing is, made, is number nine on his top ten things of ways to get me really angry at you. And since our only security and our only real um, hope in the future is the blessings of a gracious and merciful and kind God, then we've got to be careful that we obey his law. And I think that's the first way to do it. Um, second, uh, interesting, you almost uh, made the same comment again, Mark, and Brian, you picked up on this earlier, and, and I know you couldn't see my notes. Um, we can start building an emergency supply of food. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my mom routinely kept a full month's worth of food in uh, the larder. And we had, you know, peanut butter, and we had cornmeal, and, you know, stuff that, you know, you wouldn't really want to eat it unless you had to. But sure enough, at least once a year, <coughs> pardon me, we've been in a situation where that's what we lived on for a week or two at a time. And so therefore, since Elaine and I have been married, I've always insisted that we do the same kind of thing. Uh, and what happens is when she goes to the store and she buys a can of tuna fish, she buys one for the family and she buys one that goes in the stock. And we rotate the stock to keep the cans fresh, you know, and you turn the cans over and stuff like that. So we've always got a couple of months supply of food on hand. Once, um, uh, oh, almost 20 years ago now, I was out of job, out of, out of work for about a year, and our savings actually went down to zero. We lived off those food supplies for three months. I mean, you know, it really was. We, we made preparation. We, we stored up during times of plenty so that we had something for times of want. And the average person, that food is really pretty cheap in America today. So go down to the grocery store. You know, it doesn't add very much to your, to your bill. You know, buy some tuna fish and some chicken and some... Well, I don't want to say span. That's horrible stuff. I wouldn't wish, wish that on my worst enemy. But buy some corned beef and, you know, some, some canned meats and some dried beans and things like that. And if nothing happens, if Y2K comes and goes and it's nothing, then you can take some of this food maybe and give it to your church for their food pantry to give away to poor people. Or, heck, you can eat it yourself. The thing is, you haven't wasted it. And, and if something does go bad, though, you've got some level of protection. Uh, the thing that you have to worry about, I think, is, is finding clean water. And what we did, for example, we bought out of Cabela's, which is a hunting and fishing magazine, we bought a, uh, a water purifier that you use for camping. And basically, you can go down to a lake when you're camping, and you run the water this water purifier. It produces like three or four gallons of water an hour, and uh, which is basically all you need for a large family for drinking purposes. But it takes out all the bacteria, the cryptosporidium, and the, you know, the amoebas, and all the mineral impurities, all the things you don't want to drink on it, so that you can actually recycle dirty water by using a water purifier. It's not a, not a bad thing to do. Uh, in the same way, again, growing up every summer, and living in the Midwest is the same thing, Brian. Um, every summer you can guarantee there's going to be a lightning strike, the lights are going to go out, and you're not going to have any power for a, for a day, or maybe longer. And so we grew up, we had candles everywhere. Now, we were so poor, we couldn't afford flashlights because batteries were expensive. So we had candles. And I can remember uh, quite a lot of times growing up, you know, when we didn't have lights for two or three days, and 
nighttime would come and we'd put the candles up and we'd light the candles and it kind of turned everything into a 19th century kind of Victorian romantic kind of atmosphere. And I remember the, uh, the, uh, we used to play Monopoly to the death in those days to pass the time because the idiot box, would, in fact, some of the best memories of my childhood are being caught up in the house with no power during storms because the family couldn't do anything except relate to one another. Um, fourthly, and here's probably the most controversial thing that I'll have to say, and I, people will jump all over me, but I really believe that every head of a household ought to purchase a firearm. And, and if possible, get a concealed carry permit. Now, the reason why I say that is that growing up in rural Maine, firearms were just a part of life. I mean, every family had firearms. I can remember my brothers having to go out at night and sleep in the corn patch in the backyard with a single-shot 22 rifle. One of them had a flashlight, the other one had a 22 rifle. And the reason why they were there is because the deer and the raccoons would come into the garden at night and they would eat our entire crop unless we did something. So the guys would be out there, and if they actually managed to shoot a raccoon, for example, they, they got the skin, and they could sell the skin for a bounty. I forget what it was. I think it was like a dollar or something in those days, early 60s. They could sell it, the skin for a bounty, and that gave them some pocket money. And I can remember them, you know, uh, all during the spring and the, and the early summer before crops came in, coming in at 7 o'clock in the morning and being all tired and weary. But that's just what people did. I remember one time when my brother Joe came running in the house, my oldest brother, picked up the 22 off the wall and ran outside and we all ran out after him and he screamed at us to stay in the house and there was a dog in the yard that was rabid and so you know we had to shoot this poor rabid dog I mean it's really I mean it wasn't like old yeller you know we all love the dog it was some strange dog we hadn't seen before uh, but the fact is is that firearms were just a way of of life city people don't have those experiences and they're scared of firearms they don't know how to they don't know how to use them and uh, what I'm going to say is that, you know, we need to, to, to redevelop that particular skill. When you have a firearm and you take responsibility to use it properly, you are living in the grand tradition of a responsible American citizen. You have a constitutional right to own one, and you better get one before it's too late. I hate to say this, guys, but the police can't protect you. All the police can do, and when you dial 911, is they'll come and they'll, you know, they'll bag your body, and they'll take fingerprints and they'll try to investigate your murder but they can't protect you I forget what the exact figure is off the top of my head and I should know this but I know that the statistics are in the millions every year that American citizens lawfully use firearms to prevent a serious crime and women especially a firearm is the great equalizer all the rapes and 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 beatings and all the attacks that women have to have to face through they a firearm can make the difference in their life and so I, I really think I think that people should get a firearm bad guys are not stupid if they think you've got a firearm guess what they're not gonna bother you they're gonna go down the street and bother some poor liberal leftist person who doesn't know any better uh, in line with that I'm going to say that uh, uh, people need, need to learn to take uh, some basic security precautions in their home. Now, there's a great little book that Peter Hammond, the South African missionary, has put out several years ago, just before South Africa uh, went into the new, new nation state and they didn't know what to expect. It's called Security and Survival in Insecure Times. And it's a little book that goes through things that you can do to protect your family from fire, from theft, from, you know, terrorist attack. It's a pretty comprehensive little book. And uh, one of the things he recommends, which I think is brilliant, is that, guys, your front door is the way that most bad guys will come in. 
In my house, for example, all you got to do to get into my front door is break out the glass, reach your hand in, throw the deadbolt, and open the door. Well, we're buying a big security gate. It's very artistic, looks very nice, the neighbors won't complain, and it makes sure that nobody is going to get in and hurt us. The point is, is that if you can, you cannot keep a bad guy from getting into your house. I'm sorry. If they're dedicated and they're motivated, whatever barriers you put up, they can find a way around. What you can do is make it difficult enough to get into your house that they won't bother and they'll go down the road. After all, if they were interested in hard work, they wouldn't be burglars, they'd get a job. Uh, however, if they do want to get in your house and they do get through your, your security door, basically what you want to do is make sure that you have enough time to give them a, shall we say, warm welcome when they get in. And that seriously is something to consider. Uh, in line with that, I will also suggest that families in the next couple of years seriously consider buying a dog. A big dog. A dog that makes a big bark and has a strong sense of territoriality, one that's going to protect your family. I'm not talking about getting a Doberman or a Rottweiler or a German Shepherd. For the simple fact is that these dogs are usually too aggressive for most people. Most people do not have the time or the talent to train them properly, and they can be dangerous if they're, if they're not handled properly. Uh, but what I'm suggesting here is that get an animated burglar alarm. And what you want is a, a, a dog that will make a big noise if someone comes on your property. Now, that big noise serves two purposes. One, believe it or not, that big noise will scare away most crooks. It's amazing at that, but crooks say repeatedly when they're being interviewed by the police that if there is a dog, a big dog in the area, they usually avoid the house. They'll go someplace else. They're scared of them. I don't know. I don't know why that should be, but a lot of people are frightened by big dogs. But most of them, but more, even more important than that, a barking dog, again, gives you time. It warns you of possible intruders, and therefore you have the opportunity to prepare that one reception we just talked about a moment ago. Besides, if you don't have a dog, and you do have kids, if you buy a dog, you suddenly become a hero. And there aren't many of us fathers that can't stand a little bit of increase in stature in our, our kids', uh, kids lives. Finally, something that Brian mentioned uh, here is that uh, you can start saving a certain amount from your paycheck every week in cash. And just put it somewhere. If you bought a firearm, then and you, you want some secure place to put the firearm so that it's not accessible to children, and just put a few extra dollars, maybe only $25 a week. Maybe you can't save up an entire month, but you should have some sort of cash reserve available so that you can get through uh, a short time if your bank isn't functioning. If nothing happens, hey, you've got cash, okay? You, if after, you know, in February, March, or April 2000, <coughs> no big thing has happened, you can put the money back in the thing. On the other hand, if something does happen, you're as prepared as you possibly could be. Now there's other things you can do, and, and uh, the only last one I'll mention here as, we, as I wrap up this particular section of what we're talking about, is that uh, you really you can't do it alone. And that's really one of the problems I have with the survivalist mindset. We're not supposed to live alone. We're supposed to belong to a covenant community. People that we can trust. People that will watch your back. People that will help you if, if you're hurting. People that will, uh, will come together and, and, and help you to, to put out the fire if it's burning your house. or will take care of your kids if you're too sick to do it. You know, and that's what the church is really supposed to be, a covenant community of brothers and sisters who will depend on each other, will trust each other. And so therefore, I think what happens is that Christians need to get together on this one and say, look, maybe Y2K will be bad, maybe not. But, but there's any number of things that could happen down there, 
And you know, a covenant community is necessary to build regardless of what happens. To be able to, to support one another and help one another and encourage one another and spend time with one another. So if the year 2000 thing turns out to be nothing, you lose nothing by following the kinds of things I've suggested here. You haven't given up your livelihood. You haven't, uh, you, know, you know, impoverished your family. You've paid off your debts. You've learned how to live frugally and prudently. And, and besides, you've secured your property as best as the average person can in these very frightening times. And on the other hand, if Y2K should turn out to be anything like the nightmare that some people are predicting, or if some terrorist nation comes in and blows up you know, New York City with a nuclear bomb, or if the Chinese launch an ICBM at us, or if an asteroid strikes the Earth, or if little green men from the lesser Magellanic cloud come and invade us, whatever the case may be, you're still as prepared as any person can be in these times. Now, rich people can do a lot more. Lord bless them. And they're right to that. But we poor people have to deal with the reality of what it is. We're not running away. We're not giving into paranoia. Uh, we're just taking reasonable precautions. I think that those kinds of things can make, is about really all a family has to do. Looking at uh, the year 2000, we have to say that uh, one of the things that uh, does mark our time is that private corporations are spending a lot of money getting ready for it. And uh, more than one company has uh, grown rich providing the uh, expertise to do it. In fact, uh, the present uh, economic boom of last year and this is in large part due to the computer world. And it is related to the fact of all the work they've had getting ready for this uh, year 2000. Now, the federal government is not prepared. Mm, no. It is uh, uh, making noises now about preparation, and so we can anticipate there will be problems there. Uh, it's a question mark as to whether the problems will be serious enough to uh, shatter the whole economic front, or whether they will be uh, a serious uh, short-term problem. Uh, we don't know, but as you've stated, uh, Brian, it is well uh, to be prepared for the future in any time, no matter what the conditions and circumstances, because we have a duty to live providentially at all times. That's a religious duty. Now, uh, we haven't gone into one aspect, although you've touched on it, uh, Brian, uh, the responsibility of the church. The church has a duty in this crisis to call attention to the fact that there are serious problems. And I think the church has a duty to say that uh, God's judgment is not technological, it is moral. Mm. That we have to make clear there is a difference. If the problem is purely technological, I'm fearful of the 
moral consequences for our country. It'll be a good way of evading our responsibility for having created the moral climate of our time. So I feel that you men, in calling attention to the fact that it is dangerous to reduce the dimensions of the problem to a technological uh, one that is uh, belongs to the world of computer experts and corporate decisions, because the ordinary man of God can do nothing about such a situation. Yes. But any moral man can see the problem that exists morally across the country and make a stand in terms of that, make a, a stand in his family and in his church, in his Christian school, in his home school, in every area and sphere of life. That is where the real issue is, not in something that the average man knows nothing about. Amen. Rush, I, I think that's very eloquently stated and tremendously important. One of the, the symptoms of what I call millennial fever is a tendency for Christians who should know better to become so narrowly focused on this one aspect and how they plan to survive it that they neglect the broader aspects of what God has called us and commanded us to do. The reason why I asked you the question on the last tape, and you were following it through here, is that repeatedly in history God has scourged and disciplined his people. But I don't recall there being a prophet who came beforehand and said, okay everyone, the judgment of God is coming now uh, and, and you have a chance of getting away from it and, and you can now, for example, uh, the, 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 the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals are coming so let's all run over to Constantinople to, to avoid you know, being raped and mm -hmm. murdered by them. Let's, um, you know, let's, let's all flee to the new world so that we won't get to the Black Plague and, and die. Um, the Mongols are coming. Let's all go flee to Spain because that's as far west as we can go and we won't have to worry about being invaded by them. Fleeing is, I think, the wrong approach to any crisis. I'm sorry, Rush, I cut you off there. Yes, I was sorry. Uh, uh, please continue after I interject this. There was one uh, prominent writer who said that uh, flight to the new world was the solution, that uh, the growing crisis of civilization could only be obviated by going to an area where sin did not yet exist. And that was the Roman poet, pagan poet Horace, speaking about going westward in the Atlantic to the new lands that he was sure were out there. Interesting. Lands which he felt were still free from the taint, mm. we would say, of the fall. Mm. Yes. Well, the only point I'm saying is that, is that what you're talking about was that the key to get through this difficulty, as well as any other difficulty that comes up, is to be a valiant man of God. Fulfill your calling. Love your wife. Teach your kids. Serve your brothers and sisters in the church. Reach out in evangelism and discipleship in the community. Educate your kids in a Christian worldview. Support the work of the kingdom. I mean, this is, it's very basic, fundamental stuff. And I, I think you, you said it so eloquently, and it just needs to be reinforced. Uh, you mentioned uh, life in Maine. Life in California back in the 
twenties and thirties was not unlike that. And in fact, in those days, uh, in most instances, marriage was uh, something that uh, two families came together to arrange. And uh, one of the reasons why they preferred marriage to a girl in the hometown or a boy in the hometown was that uh, arrangement was difficult if they were meeting at a college or a university. But in the local community, both families came together. They had a part in the decisions uh, that went into the marriage. They would sometimes help in the buying of a house if the young fellow were going to farm and the marriage gifts were designed to enable them to set up housekeeping. It was a, a decision come to by two families and to which the church family uh, gave its uh, happy assent by the kind of gifts it came and gave. So uh, wedding gifts at that time were very, very practical with one object in mind setting up everyday housekeeping. So they were very practical mm. gifts. Mm. Now, of course, that's gone. Dad, you lived through the Depression. And in a sense, in, in one way, at the, uh, the crash, things kind of fell apart mm -hmm. to, to a certain extent in certain areas and certain businesses. Um, and yet they kept going. I know some of the car manufacturers we're trying to sell cars just about at cost just to keep their factories yes. open and their workforce employed. Um, I, I think the whole idea of looking at any scenario to come and saying worst case scenario is to say that people aren't resourceful when they are. If things fell apart, the worst thing that could happen is for the hoodlums and the gangs is for people to really think it's a free-for-all hmm. because then you're going to have people start shooting back <laughs> <laughs> and then the gangs are going to they're going to take off their gang colors and their gang costumes and uh, they're going to disappear I never thought about Real that quick. Mark that's, that's quite clever people aren't going to tolerate yeah. people aren't going to tolerate lawlessness didn't San Francisco give us the word vigilante yes and, and most of the, the vigilantes are badly misunderstood yes at the time of the gold rush, there was such a rush to the gold fields and there was such a turnover in the population that there was an element that was absolutely lawless and some of them had positions of power and there was a lot of lawlessness and much of that was in <laughs> government. Yes. <laughs> and the vigilantes were an attempt, sometimes right and sometimes right. wrong, to establish order when there was no order. Right. They weren't lawless they were, criminals. They weren't mobs running through the street, yeah. And going back to that original meaning of vigilante, if things get bad enough, you will have people who say, we're not going to put up with it. Mm. So to say civilization is going to collapse because of a computer bug is not giving people much credit. And uh, true, we don't have the Christian base we once had, say, the Depression or in other times uh, in the past. But worst case scenario says very little for for people. It, it's, it's saying, give it up. Uh, a few years, uh, 20 years ago, there were some of these same people who 
talking about that the end of civilization as we know it. Um, we're talking about the end of civilization because of a nuclear holocaust. Sure. And going into a bomb shelter, and I, I always want to, you know, and have your, your freeze-dried food, and have your guns, go into your bomb shelter, and then I often thought, what's going to happen when they come out of the bomb shelter, everyone is around them is dead, they're going to take their survival weapon and blow their brains out, because what's, what's the point of surviving when there's death and destruction and nuclear radiation all around you? It's to say that we're going to survive a hopeless situation because we have some some food stored. Um, people are more resourceful. When something goes wrong, people are going to figure out how can we make it better. Well, the thing that I find interesting, Mark, is take, for example, two nations, Japan and Germany, at the end of World War II. Both nations had their entire economic infrastructure destroyed by Allied bombing, by the invasions. Their cities were gone. They lost huge numbers of their population, most of their working-age men, the men who would be the most productive. They were absolutely devastated. There was nothing on the ground. If you've seen my, my son Jonathan and I, we watch the History Channel quite a lot, and we, we love the World War II stuff. And you see the pictures of the airplanes flying over, and there's, there's only shells of buildings. There's nothing left. The industry is gone. The buildings are gone. The cathedrals are gone. The streets are rubble. The population is dead. Um, for example, there were more people killed in Dresden from uh, the RAF firebombing there in retaliation for uh, uh, Covenant, bombing Coventry. Uh, there was like 180,000 people died, more than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, terrible, horrible thing. Within five years of the end of World War II, Germany was the economic powerhouse of Europe. Britain was still on ration, rationing in 1950. Germany was off rationing, and that's with half their country enslaved by the Russians. In the same way, the Japanese, uh, af, you know, after World War II, their cities were rebuilt within 10 years, and within 15 years, they were the economic powerhouse of Asia. Within 20 years, they were rivaling the economic superpower of the United States. Now, granted, in both Germany and, you know, in Japan, there was foreign capital to rebuild their plants. But the worst thing that's going to happen in Y2K will not be our, our steel mills being blown up. You know, maybe there's going to be a problem running the schedule of the airlines, but nobody's going to blow up all the airplanes. So, you know, we, we'll get it sorted out. You know, maybe there's going to be a problem with, with uh, rail deliveries, you know, because the scheduling computer's off. But the railroads are still there. Nobody's bombed the railroad tracks or blown up the engines or destroyed all the produce. Uh, so, I mean... I think we need to put all these things in perspective in terms of, of, of fear. Brian mentioned in his talk earlier, it might have been on the other tape, what's called FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, and I don't want to be nasty, but let's face it, there are people out there who make their living capitalizing on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And uh, the more, as Brian said, I think that, that the more that this spreads, the more likely it is to actually generate genuine solutions rather than it is to, to, to lead to the, the massive chaos. I think people need to be prudent, need to take some genuine precautions, need to look out where they live and how they live and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I don't think they have to give in to this paranoia and this fear. And it's the desire of some people to give in to that where when you talk to them, they don't want to hear the facts. They want to believe the worst case scenario that's what I'm terming now millennial fever. It's not the fact that people are concerned about Y2K. Everyone around this table is concerned about it, and we spent the whole, whole evening talking about it. 
but rather it's the idea that this must be the end of the world, there is nothing we can do, and I think that is more indicative of the sociology of the situation than it is of a real threat in our future. We are facing a world crisis culturally. No doubt about it. Uh, the humanistic civilization begun by the Enlightenment is nearing its conclusion. It's dying. But we need to see the whole situation not in terms of grim foreboding, but as an opportunity to recapture civilization for Jesus Christ. And it is towards this end we must work in faith, not in fear. The predictions that are made concerning the next century, you wonder, the, some of these predictors, if they, uh, why they aren't committing suicide, frankly. <laughs> because what they see ahead is so grim, uh, they should lose their appetite for life. One of the things that, uh, and this is purely experiential, I don't have a scripture to back this up with, but one of the things that convinces me that, that though humanist civilization is bound to collapse and will collapse and is collapsing even as we're talking, I don't think the final collapse is there yet because God has not prepared his church properly for it. We're not ready to take on the responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean we, should, we can goof off or we can take it easy because we're not ready, but there are precious few of us yet who really have the vision. Now, that's growing every year. Give us 20 or 30 years, and uh, rather than a few thousand, I think there'll be a few hundred thousand. Um, next 10 years, we can see that happening. And the message that we've got, Russia's message is being taken out and it's being spread, but it's, it's working like leaven in society. It's not acting like a revolutionary idea, but it's permeating and filling things. You know, it's, it's really tiny, almost insignificant seed right now, but it's starting to grow. And, uh, and I think that, that uh, God is not going to bring down the old until he's got his church ready to usher in the new. Yes. And uh, that doesn't mean that we can sit on our laurels. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be working for advancing the kingdom. We shouldn't be aware that we live in dangerous times. I think we live in very dangerous, evil times. Perhaps, probably, the most dangerous, evil times in American history. These are really scary stuff uh, going on. And it's not just Y2K. But I think we can still... We don't have to get be, be rushed into making um, unwise decisions. Many people throughout history have had to go through more disruption and more upheaval than we could ever imagine exactly. through mm -hmm. uh, a mere computer problem and a computer breakdown. A lot of people throughout history have had to live with the possibility and the actuality of being invaded marched and deported from their homes hundreds or thousands of miles. Uh, some of this is even recorded in the Bible. Sure. Uh, Israel was taken captive to Assyria and Babylon. Um, the possibility of wide scale when uh, people rebelled against Rome, people by the thousands were sold into slavery or crucified. Um, there have been disruptions throughout history that would boggle our imagination. And we tend to look at our problems and saying, well, if there's any disruption in our lifestyle, it might be the end of civilization as we know it. 
And that's to overestimate our importance in the whole scheme of history, in the whole scheme of God's purpose. And it's to overestimate that, you know, if there's any depreciation in our lifestyle or in our economy, it must be God's immediate judgment in all of history. Mm -hmm. And like, um, this is this is the standard whereby mu things must be, and if, and if I experience any disruption, that's a major judgment of God. Very good. Well said, Mark. I, I just mm -hmm. concur with you so much, and it needs to be said. We're a bunch of wimps, and we can't handle hard times, mm -hmm. and so therefore, it's just like, it's just like the dispensationalist who when he's confronting something that scares him, he falls on his face and prays for the rapture because he doesn't think he can go through it. I think the same kind of thing is kind of kind of going on here. You know, let's run to the hills or let's 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 you know move into a survivalist retreat rather than say, look, if God makes us go through hard times, then that's part of his disciplining process. Greater is he who's with us than he was in the world. The you know, he will preserve us, he will defend us, he will take care of us, and ultimately he will prosper us as long as we're obedient to him. And unless somebody gets a specific prophecy from God that says, you know, get out of San Francisco or get out of Los Angeles or get out of New York City. Well, I've been telling Steve Schlichel for years to get out of New York City, but he won't <laughs> listen to me. Uh, but unless we get a specific prophecy, I don't know how, we, how anyone can say that you must do that. All you can do is, is uh, take what personal uh, decisions that you feel are prudent uh, and uh, go along with your calling what God says. And not to judge someone else. Because they're accountable to God for what they do, how they spend their money, how they spend their time. They're not accountable to me. They're not accountable to anyone else. So they have the right to do it. But at the same time, I don't think we have to give in to FUD. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Well, our time is nearly up. Is there a last word that any of you have that you'd like to add? Very grateful to both of you, Brian's. We always enjoy you and... Uh, we appreciate your time with us today and uh, pray for God's blessing upon you. Thank you, Rush. It was a real privilege to be here again with everyone. Thank you. It's an honor and a Thank pleasure. Thank you all for listening and God bless you.